turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, if you will. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter six, <clears throat> we'll read verses four through fifteen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thine soul, with all thy might. <clears throat> and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontless between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou findest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods, <clears throat> of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. May God bless this reading of his word. <clears throat> Today is Mother's Day, and I assume that the scene in your home was someone like the one in mine when we all sang Happy Mother's Day, and we uh, felt guilty because I hadn't gotten a present, <clears throat> and uh, the children had gotten a present, and I felt more guilty. And uh, But anyway, it's Mother's Day, and we all rejoice over this. We've been studying uh, Deuteronomy, and we come, uh, we've been studying the Exodus uh, from Egypt to the Promised Land. We come in the books that describe this to the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, something of <clears throat> Moses' uh, last words to Israel prior to his death and prior to their entry into the Promised Land. We find in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy that he again goes through the Ten Commandments, reiterating these, reviewing these again. And then in this sixth chapter, you find this well-known portion of Scripture which we just read. First, we find a description of the unified oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. I use the term unified oneness of God because of the Hebrew word that's used uh, where it says the Lord thy God is one Lord. The Hebrew word for one there is achid, A-C-H-I-D. Uh, there was another word that could have been used which was yachid. <clears throat> Y-A-C-H-I-D. Both of these words mean one, but 
The word yaked means an absolute or an only one, whereas the word aked means a unified one. Ex-Rabbi Leo Cohn says that one reason that the Jews have become estranged from the doctrine of the triune God is found in the teaching of Moses Maimonides. Now, he lived somewhere around the 13th century A.D. He wrote down some 13 articles of faith, a creed for Jews to repeat as part of their liturgy. And uh, the first article is, I believe with a perfect heart that the Creator is an absolute one. And the word that he uses here is yaked, is a yaked. You get the difference in several passages of Scripture. When it says Abraham's only son, Isaac, it's yaked, is the Hebrew word that's used there, meaning an absolute or an only one. But when in Genesis 20, uh, in Genesis 2:24, when it says, "Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh," the Hebrew word is "aked." The same word that's used here in the Lord thy God is one Lord. You notice there, where the two become one, it's a unified one, not an absolute one. And so the very Hebrew word that's used here implies that there are more persons in the Godhead, only there's one God. The description of the unified oneness of God. This is a key, a key scripture passage for the Jewish people. They call this the Shema. They bind it in uh, little rolled up scrolls and carry it around in various containers. And yet, even in this verse of Scripture, we have an intimation of the fact that uh, God is more than one person in the Godhead. We not only have the description of the unified oneness of God, but we have the demand of complete love to God. As he says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. The whole heart. God does not want part of our heart. God is not willing for any of our heart space to be given to something else. We are to love him from the heart sincerely. We are to love him supremely. As Christ put it in the New Testament, if any man loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. If we love our own life more than him, we are not worthy of him. If we love anything more than him, we are not worthy of him. He must have the supreme place, the first place in our heart. This is the commandment. Jesus called this the great commandment. You remember on the occasion when the lawyer stood up to tempt him in the 10th chapter of Luke, he said, Good Master, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, What says the law? How readest thou? And he quoted this commandment. The lawyer said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Jesus said, This do and thou shalt live. We need to be real careful here. No one's done it. We need to realize that no one has loved God with all of their heart. 
We all come short. We've all broken this first and great commandment, this summary statement of our duty to God. Just like we've broken the second great commandment, the summary statement of our duty to man, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. No man has done it. This do, and in that statement it's the continuing tense of the verb, this continually do, and thou shalt live. No one's done it. That's why Christ came, in order that sinners who had not kept this great commandment might be saved through his dying for our sin and through our faith in him and our surrender to him. But once we have come to Christ as our Savior, then this commandment becomes our goal. Here's the pattern that we are to set for ourselves. We are to have as our goal love toward God and love toward our fellow man. What the law could not do, it could not produce this love because we were born sinful. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, a true man, and for sin, for our sin, to die for it, condemned sin in the flesh. He broke the reign of sin in the lives of those who commit their life to him. He did it that the righteousness of the law, that the way of life that the law called for, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within once we come to Jesus Christ. And through the power of the indwelling Spirit, we can now begin to love God from the heart. We can put him first in our lives. We can love him supremely. We'll fall short of fully fulfilling this every day, but we'll make progress. This becomes our goal, and we make progress toward it. We have directions given. <clears throat> Concerning the words of God in the sixth verse, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The description of what we are to do with the words of God. <clears throat> the word of God is to be in reference to ourselves, is to be in our hearts. Incidentally, we pick up here that the particular aspect of the words of God that he's dealing with are the commandments. These words which I command thee. In verse 1, now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whithersoever, <clears throat> whither you go to possess it. So particularly... The aspect of the word that's to be in our heart that he's dwelling on here is the law of God. To have it in our heart would speak of uh, having an understanding of it and obeying it, letting it control us. Right away we're reminded of the terms of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33, where Jeremiah says that uh, God would make a new covenant he would write his law in our hearts. As a matter of fact, Berkeley's translation of this verse here in Deuteronomy 6 is, These words shall be written in your hearts. 
when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit comes to live within, we receive a new heart. He says, I will take the stony heart out. I will give you a new heart. I will write my law on that heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and do them. That from within, there would be the desire to obey and the power. We would really be under the control of this pattern. Uh, so here we are in terms of, in reference to ourselves, as Christians and as parents, <clears throat> we are to have his word written in our heart through conversion and thus regeneration and through uh, then continual reforming of our life to accord with these laws. Continual uh, getting of the pattern in our minds and then obeying in our hearts. That's what we're to do in reference to ourselves. In reference to our children, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. As a relationship, we get them in our upon your church. Physical responses that we face in life. We learn this biblical The goal would be left in all of the different situations. The council, J. Adams, the duty. Sad to his readers. We train this going for everyone righteousness, for he is a baby. The cause of practice trained to discern good and evil. Because they fail to practice holy living, then God will is off to be even for. It says, in the days of his flesh, he sang in tears, and yet he suffered and through. Obedience in a sinful world is difficult. There were other seemingly easier ways for Christ to 
is easier for the moment only. Temptation that Satan brought before him in the wilderness takes easier ways, seemingly easier ways. Choose the easy, sinful way. He refused to succumb to pressure in the Garden of Gethsemane. Obediently, through death, and rose again from the dead triumphant. Similarly, learn obedience, and it's all the harder for them. And so, it says that the words, our senses, trained, indicate that it's the inner springs of one part of his personality that one must repetition to discern between good and evil. One must learn to do God's will, which he has discovered in Scripture. He must practice the good so faithfully that whenever occasions to sin arise, and without deliberation, he knows what to do, and he does it with ease and acceptance. Now, this is the... And they know the biblical response the biblical pattern called for. So accustomed to yielding to the biblical pattern that it becomes to follow this biblical pattern to do. Ultimately, of course, uh, requires our discipline of our children their discipline of themselves. Self-discipline is the goal. Initially, we must force them to conform to the pattern. In Proverbs 19:18. Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not set your heart on his destruction. If you wait too long, it's too late. This folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Therefore, the battle gets to be... <coughs> Not allowing that folly to erupt in the response that it would like to make, but rather to cause that child to restrain himself and to respond in the biblical pattern. Discipline. This means punishment. In the book Dare to Discipline by Dr. James Dobson, he has very, very practical suggestions. He makes the law of reinforcement. Two by the first educational psychologist. because it works. which achieves desirable consequences will recur. I'm going to say that immediate reinforcement is the most useful technique available to parents teaching responsibility to their children. Parents often complain, complain about the irresponsibility of the youngsters, yet they fail to realize that this lack of industriousness has been learned. All human behavior is learned. 
the desirable and the undesirable responses. Children learn to laugh, play, run, and jump. They also learn to whine, bully, pout, fight, throw temper tantrums, or be tomboys. The universal teacher is reinforcement. The child repeats the behavior which he considers to be successful. He repeats the behavior that he finds rewards him in the way that he wants to be rewarded, that he considers to be successful. If he finds that he gets his way one time by throwing a temper tantrum, he'll throw it every time. Uh, He finds that he gets his way by, or he gets punished when he disobeys, then he will cease disobeying because he doesn't find that to be very desirable. That's not successful behavior. I think of, uh, on one occasion when we came home and my mother had uh, been babysitting for us the night before and she reported that the children hadn't behaved. And uh, usually she didn't have any problem with them, but she'd had a real problem with them. So the next morning, as soon as they got up, I said, everybody line up. We're going to get a spanking because of uh, the fact that you didn't obey granny. My three-year-old at the time, she said, spanking, spanking. So you're going to spank us. So what? I could see something new was needed. Uh, I said, I changed my mind. I believe I'm going to switch you. I'd never had switched them. And so I went outside and got a good thick switch, and I came in. And she said, switch, Smith. And uh, very disinterested, very blase sitting on the couch so I said Sam you're first pull up your pants legs so Sam uh, stood up and pulled up his pants legs and I began to switch him and he began to jump into holler her eyes got real big she said she said yikes I'm getting out of here (laughs) she blew her cool in a hurry Exactly. She found that uh, the pattern of behavior wasn't getting what she really wanted. Uh, Reinforcement, the universal teacher, uh, that we must, uh, by the use of discipline that makes itself felt, uh, whatever is required, train biblical responses into our children. Now, when are we to do this and where are we to do this? In the seventh verse there, it says, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, so on. We have, it seems to me, both a formal instruction aspect and an informal talk aspect. Teach, like you sit down and you teach, 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 give instruction. Now, this would include the course uh, Sunday school, where they're taught in a systematic way, the biblical pattern, the Ten Commandments, and so on. It would again uh, include all manner of other instructions, such as uh, the camp opportunity and the uh, neighborhood Bible clubs and things of this nature. Every opportunity to teach in a formal instruction situation. And of course, in the home. Instruction in the home. This means a period each day when we instruct our children. In our home, we found that the breakfast table is the best time to have such a period. We found that the different books have helped us with this. One of the best little books we've found is 
Kenneth N. Taylor's Stories for the Children's Hour, uh, which has just been amazingly helpful in teaching some of these principles. Again, uh, it involves informal teaching situations, though. It says, Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Here's a 24-hour teaching situation where in a conversational, in a very natural way, in all of the different aspects of life, we continually, by our own manner of life, our own responses, and by using opportunities that come up to teach principles in terms of verbal communication, we are communicating this pattern and we're training it into our children. Uh, yesterday we were driving along in the car and as we drove through one section of town we commented on the beautiful homes and uh, somebody, I believe my wife said, well when we get rich we're going to get one of these. Uh, this gave occasion to speak of what are true riches. And uh, it was interesting to me that it wasn't myself who raised the question of what are true riches. One of the children immediately said, well, you know, we are rich. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got God in our hearts. This is, the, this is what counts. In every situation, naturally, you transition from the things around you into the subject of the things of Christ. Uh, this is ideal. Uh, I remember several years ago, and I shared with you how my little girl came and wanted a dog, and I said, no dogs, because our German shepherd had treated our next-door neighbor, <clears throat> and uh, he's a lawyer, and, uh, <clears throat> and I said, no dogs, and uh, she said, uh, all right, I'll just ask Jesus. Well, I, uh, I didn't know exactly how to react to that, but I figured she'd forget it, and I said, okay, you ask Jesus. But she didn't forget it. She prayed morning, noon, and night. And she wanted to ask the blessing. She'd say, send, bless the food and send the dog. And uh, it went on this way for weeks, and finally we began to get concerned. We began to look for a dog. We felt we had to answer her prayer. We better look after the good Lord and help him out here. Came home one day, and the morning she had said, Jesus, I'm tired of waiting. I want my doggy today. Came home, and there sat the dog inside the back fence, a little puppy. She had even specified white fluffy. It was white and fluffy. And as it turned out, uh, one of the ladies in the church who taught at Southeastern Bible College, the students there, brought in the little puppy that morning and said, Someone left this puppy. We've been feeding him. Uh, from scraps under the table, but we are going home today. School's out. What can we do with the dog? She said, that must be the dog the Lord has for Peggy Barker. Brought him over and put him in the yard. Now, you wonder, uh, how does this develop where a child naturally uh, transitions into thinking in terms of, I'll ask Jesus for the dog? That, uh, that was not what we would think of as a usual response. The usual response would have been to nag and plead and kick and uh, cajole daddy until daddy finally gave in. And I thought back, and maybe it has to do with the fact that she's seen uh, when we didn't have something that we wanted and needed that we would ask the Lord. They were party to when several years ago when we didn't uh, have any way to go to Montreat and we prayed about it and got right down to the last week. No way to go to Montreat that we were supposed to go, you know, and 
somebody walked up and said, why don't you take my trailer? And uh, then again last year, when we were supposed to go to Montreat, and again, no reservations cause no money, and uh, yet uh, and the family would talk about it, and they'd say, well, you just go and we won't go, and I'd say, no, the Lord wants us all to go. And different people would say, are you going to Montreat? Yeah, we're all going to Montreat. And we're supposed to leave on Monday and Sunday. We didn't have any reservations and didn't have any way to go. One of the men in the church said, uh, said, y'all going to Montreat? I said, yeah, this was after church on Sunday. He said, "Uh, where are you staying? (laughs) I said, well, I don't know. He said, you mean you don't have a reservation? I said, well, uh, no. He said, well, I was wondering if you'd take mine. We can't go. And I'd like you to be my guest. And you go. The children were party to this kind of thing as they would see us take our needs to the Lord and see him answer. And you're building into your children this whole approach to life as it's something that flows from the heart. It's a very natural thing if this is built into your lifestyle. The He says that you shall do this when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and thou, they shall be as frontless between thine eyes, continually before you. These commandments, both in teaching and in obeying, thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. I'm sure this isn't what's meant, but think of it in terms of just how we do use our homes and what our homes stand for. What do, what do we do in our homes? What do our children see us use our homes for? Are our homes employed to promote the gospel? Are our children accustomed to a cocktail party where the conversation in our home is anything but Christian? Uh, Are they accustomed to us using our home as a place where uh, we have a spiritual ministry, where people meet to pray together and to study the scriptures together? It's actually a place of spiritual ministry. I, again, think of... uh, Several years ago when my wife had been speaking to a young man and brought him home to lunch so that I could have a chance to talk with him. And uh, as we met and he came in uh, and sat at the table, one of my little girls was sitting at the table next to him and I was trying to gradually ease into a conversation with this gentleman and find out where he was spiritually. My little girl kept tugging on my elbow. And I said, what do you want? She said, does he know Jesus? I said, well, do you? (laughs) Well, that was wonderful. She was oriented that way. She knew this is what we do in our home. We find out whether people know Jesus. Here's a new man in our home. Let's find out. Does he know Jesus? This is what it's all about. Praise God that she had that kind of an approach to things when she meets someone new. Uh, All of this is training. We're training them in one direction or the other, continually. Not only would it be done uh, in the sense in the home, but the constant aspect of this thing is brought before you every every day, continually throughout the day. And to me, this would say that in a real situation, in a real way, the Christian school is the total teaching environment 
that's pictured here in, in Deuteronomy 6. Again, to quote J. Adams in his book, Competent to Counsel, J. Adams says, The classroom context is ideally suited to counseling conditions. It's perfectly adapted to the establishing and changing of life patterns. First, it's a total environment, such as that described in Deuteronomy 6. Secondly, there is a daily sustained influence of precisely the kind it takes to establish or alter patterns. And thirdly, the penalty and reward system inherent in teacher, if used under the authority of God, provides ample motivation for most students. Few, if any, situations are more suited to counseling than the Christian classroom. I think of a young lady here in our schools who who had problems, and eventually she was referred to me. Normally these problems should be handled in the classroom. But it takes time to train teachers to do this. It takes time to train pastors to do this. But uh, this child had a serious problem, and she was referred to me. And uh, as we talked, we talked about her response to a given temptation and the fact that hers was anything but a biblical response. Then we made up a little chart that she kept from week to week. She recorded each time that she was tempted to do this thing. And then she wrote down what the biblical, what she actually did. Then what the biblical response required was, specifically, and we had her memorize particular verses of scripture. And then what she must do now. She kept this, and she would come each week and report in on how she was progressing. And she did make real progress in a structured situation like that. Um, So much time is spent with the school situation and with the teacher, and we must take advantage of this. Again, one other aspect of it is the personal aspect. As he says in verse 20, When thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then shalt thou say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware to our fathers. You know, it's a personal aspect. When your son begins to ask you, you say, Son, let me tell you how it was with me. I was a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord brought me out. Now see, that's true of you and me. If you're a Christian parent, you were a bondman too. There was a time when you were enslaved to sin. You were doomed to hell. But the Lord delivered you. He sent his son to die for you. Then he sent his spirit to woo you so that you put your trust in his son. You have a great deliverer, the Lord Jesus. Probably there were signs and wonders when this happened. Unusual things the Lord did. Share your personal testimony with your child. Tell them how you became a Christian. Make it personal. And all of these different areas of your life, let it be personal. I've noticed that my children continually ask me, Daddy, is it true that you were a preacher and you weren't a Christian? Tell me that again. Now, how was that? Uh, there's continual interest in my own conversion experience. This is wonderful. Let it be personal. Let them see how you respond to these things and to know the history of your spiritual pilgrimage. 
There's a danger in prosperity of forgetting God, as he says, when you come into the land and then you're prosperous, beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. I've watched people who would start off and maybe they had deep problems as a family or as an individual. And as a family, they clung to the Lord. This was first in their hearts. Things began to straighten them things themselves out. And soon they began to drift from the Lord. Could that be the case with you? That either your problems have been solved or you've been making material progress in the world and you find that you're a little too sophisticated for some of these things. You don't want to be thought a fanatic. You're more interested in your children's social climbing than in your children's spiritual growth. I see it happen all the time. How is it with you? Are your children being taught like this, really? Are you working so hard to provide material things for them, to get them a bigger house, a place at the lake, send them to the best college? Are you working so hard for that kind of thing that you're overlooking what they really need in life? A Christian mom and a Christian dad, that it's a 24-hour thing, that this is our home, our lifestyle, everything about us. It just pours out of our heart day and night. That's what your kid needs. He needs to live in that total Christian environment. It's got to start with a parent and go from heart to heart. You know, the greatest Mother Day present we could give our mothers would be <clears throat> for the daddies to begin living that way. No holds barred. For the children to begin really responding in a home like that. And for mothers to be good mothers, the best thing in the world they could do would be to let this be their lifestyle right here. This is what it's all about. How is it with you? Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this instruction that you gave to Moses and to us. We thank you, Father, for this tremendous fact that the Christian faith is a lifestyle, that it's meant to be lived 24 hours every day in every situation. Oh, God, help us to children in this way. Help us, Father, to in our own lives really have the biblical pattern and be responding in a biblical way to life's situations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.